0: Welcome to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. This podcast is where we explore the landscape of the immensity of landmines that exist for people who've lost their sense of identity, who've been shaken to the core, and are relearning who they are now that a part of them is lost. It's stories of how people manage this struggle, regain their footing, and the gifts they've discovered along the way. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, Tina. Hello, hello, Julie. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I am
1: honored. I truly am honored to be here with you. This is such a cool conversation.
0: Yes, even though it's a difficult subject, we love it when when we love to talk about it, right? Tough times.
1: We love to help others through it.
0: Exactly. So today on Bold Becoming, we have Tina, Tina Brandau, and she is the author of a book called Standing Strong. And she's going to tell us about her identity loss that happened because of a traumatic brain injury when she was 40 years old, that something happened with a tree and we're going to find out. (laughs) Oh my God, I'm laughing, but um, I know it was like horrible, but thank God you're still alive. Because we'll we'll talk about that too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And basically, so her identity loss was like, you get this traumatic brain injury, and she sort of reverted back to functioning level of a three-year-old. And now here she is. She like ended up back in her corporate career, left that, and now is an entrepreneur. And we're going to find out about like where she is now. But let's just jump into really the identity loss story. Where were you? Who were you before that day of the tree?
1: I love that. The day of a tree. I'm going to start using that. The day of the tree. Oh my goodness. I actually call it the run of a lifetime. That's what I call it. Um, Who was I beforehand? Before I was an executive, I was one of the aspiring 30 under thirties. And I was somebody who was just really hammering my career, aspiring, 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 doing all those things, reaching goal after goal. And I had everything put together the way I wanted it to be. Mm. Until it literally was broken completely apart. Mm. So I was training for a marathon and I went for a run. And it was one of those mornings. I don't know if you've ever had one of these mornings. I sure hope you have. And I hope all your listeners have had many as well, where you just feel like you're on fire, like everything's going perfect. I was starting to run. I was training for a marathon and I went out for a run this morning and I'm clipping along. It's effortless. And I say out loud, this is the run of a lifetime. Mm. Oh, whoops. Little did I know how true that statement was going to become in just a moment, but I had actually, uh, I was running in a wooded path and a tree happened to have dry rotted and broke free from its roots at exactly the time that I was on that exact space in that path where it came down across the path.
0: So wait a minute. It wasn't even just a branch, an entire tree.
1: It was a pine tree, 40 foot tall, 10 inch diameter pine tree. How I'm sitting here today is nothing less than miraculous, just to be alive. And in fact, the trauma unit doctor, I was sent, we have a lot of great health systems where I live and I was sent to a level one trauma center. And of course, and so they immediately told my husband, these accidents happen all the time. People just don't live to tell the story. That's why you don't hear about it. Oh, cool. so I, and, and I tell people all the time in my world, look at the number of trees you see laying on the ground. They don't just fall when nobody's around. And the right. same true for rocks, rock falls and tree falls are very, very real, but people a don't survive to tell the story or B they're left in such a state that they can't tell the story. And I am a miracle on both fronts.
0: And how does somebody find you? Because sometimes when you're running early in the morning, you're sort of
1: alone. I was alone. We were camping. It was in a campground running through a wooded trail where nobody was out. Nobody was out yet. Um, It's a very interesting story because I clearly was, the technical term of what I call it was, I was just a mess. That's the only way I can describe it. My technical word, a mess. So um, I, I had so much in and out of consciousness, so much going on. And I write all about it. And I don't not going to go into all the detail here because there's a whole backstory to it. But what I ended up doing was realizing that I had sensation in my arms and I felt something and I knew I had, this is back 15 years ago. Okay. So, so you're lying on the ground. I'm I'm not to the ground. I don't know how long I'm down. I don't know how long I'm down. I don't know how long I'm out. I'm not to the ground. I finally get to a place where I can actually lift my body off the ground. I can actually do something. Thank God I could do something. And then I reach up and I feel this, my arm, like something on my arm. And so I pull it out and it's my MP3 player and not to get too graphic or gory for your listeners, but how we know that is there was blood all over the actual MP3 player. So I grabbed it. Obviously it did nothing for me. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't think I couldn't process. And it was just a a blur of nothingness for me. Then I grabbed my other arm because I could feel something there. And I'm thinking, I've got to do something. I'm going to die. I mean, I knew I was bleeding. Although I didn't know it was blood at the time, I knew there was something wrong with me. I found out later it was blood, but I pulled out my cell phone. Well,
0: wait, what did you think it was? If if you didn't know it was blood, what I thought it, it was it sweating
1: been? because I was running. Oh, okay. So it's like you know, I'm just, I'm really, it's hot, I'm sweating, and then I got really cold, and then I got really, really, really cold. To which later you went so, into shock, right? I was a bit. To which later the doctor says, "It's just shock. <laughs> it's just shock. <laughs> it's just shock." But I pulled my the shock, the body's shutting down. Body's shutting down, no big deal. We'll get back to you next week. No <laughs> um, so I pulled out my cell phone, which was a flip phone. And I just pressed buttons and you can see my bloody fingerprints on there. And I just, I like, literally, they believe I was smacking the buttons and I can't say what I was doing or not doing with my hands, but you can see the fingerprints. And all of a sudden I hear a voice. So I Mm. must, the only conclusion that we believe to be true is that I must've hit the send button because it would redial the last number called. And the only word I could say at the time was bleed. Mm. And it just so happened by the grace of God that I had called my husband last. Mm. Had I called somebody else or he not answered in that point, I would have probably bled to death in that path that day. So he knew that I was completely discombobulated. He knew that I couldn't. He knew I wasn't me, and I wasn't. My words, my words were just the word. Even the word "bleed" came out like "bleed." So he's like, "Whoa, what happened to her?" So he went and got a hold of the park ranger immediately, who came out on a four wheeler because they couldn't get an ambulance through the trail. It was too narrow. So my husband and the park ranger ended up finding me, getting me, the ambulance met me there. They rushed me off to a trauma unit. Again, a whole series of miraculous things happening right in front of my eyes. Like this is it's there's so many coincidences or God instances that unfolded together for me to be able to get to that ambulance to get to a hospital, that it's it's humbling. It's beyond humbling. So Yes, I had my life flipped upside down in about a second and a half. Um,
0: just to cut in, you sort of reminded me of two years, summer of 2021, and I'm not going to tell the whole story, but I was backpacking, I was alone, doing cross country, my family had gone off ahead without me, I was like in the wrong place, um, all of this stuff, and I got down to where I was supposed to be and going through this jungle where you needed like three chainsaws and two machetes to get one step ahead and I fell and as I was falling. There was this branch sticking up and I was like if I'm and you know how you go in slow motion when you fall. Mm -hmm. You
1: do. (laughs) As I was was falling,
0: I was thinking, so if I'm 12, if I were 12 inches, if I was falling 12 inches to the right, would that, would that um, branch impale me in the eye, in the neck or the chest? And how long would it take me to die out there? Because nobody's hiking there because there's no trail. It's such a weird feeling when, you know, you,
1: you are just at the mercy of life. Really, really, truly, really, truly. For mine, when it hit me, it knocked me down and out. So I had no more thought in that moment. So, and ironically, I heard a noise off into my right behind me. And what do you do when you hear a noise? You turn and you look. And as I looked, it hit me. So I just caught a glimpse when I went down. So I didn't even, honestly, this is a funny story. This is a very funny story. And I don't mean to make light of anything, but I have to share the humor along with it. When I first heard the noise, I was 150 million percent convinced that it was a pack of coyotes coming out of the woods and they were going to bite me in the butt and I was not going to have that that day. So I I sped up as fast as I could and they still to to today attribute my ability to be not having not having had the tree come directly across my entire body. They attribute that to the fact that I sped up. So those coyotes actually saved me from actually being crushed that day. Now, When you're hitting the head your brain bounces so i have what was called a coup contra coup brainstem injury meaning that my my brain bounced off one side of my skull off the other side of my skull and because it was a downward force it damaged my brain stem which does some really important stuff and it came down my back and blew out my low back because any friction that comes into your body has to come out of your body. so it blew out my low back so i was the technical definition of a mess. So I went from having everything all together to being a hot mess that needed 24 seven care, someone to help me to walk. I couldn't put words together. My memories were just gone. I had a pet dog who slept in my bed and had been my pet for a decade plus. Her name became dog on the days I could remember the word dog. It was a long journey and it certainly ripped away my identity of who I had become. So let's I want to hear
0: how that happens, what it feels like, how you like were seeing it happening mm-hmm. what is it so like you you were unconscious and then you became conscious at some yes. point yes and then you kept and so then since you became conscious, how did it like how is it when you can just watch your life? Because you knew that you
1: used to be able to do stuff, right? Or did you lose memory of that? So I, initially I had no concept. Initially I didn't. I mean, initially, um, actually I, I talk about it in the book in great detail that I'm riding back. So my back was so damaged. They did not, they wanted me on in a C collar and they wanted me on a backboard, but they couldn't get it through there fast enough. So they literally put me in this four wheeler and the, Ranger is holding on to me. And I hear him describing this person on the radio. And I thought to myself, that poor person, they're so hurt. Oh, I feel so bad for them. So it was was such a state of denial because I was at that point, no longer cold and no longer in any pain. The shock had taken over so much of my body that I felt fine at that moment. And that was a saving grace for me, because feeling fine meant that my blood pressure stayed down. And if I wasn't feeling pain, when you feel pain, your blood pressure goes up, which meant that I didn't bleed out of my head nearly as much, which was a very good thing for me. So again, I I, I was fine, this poor person, I don't know who they are, but they were really hurt. <laughs> so then you, you get
0: into you get stabilized, you get home or to rehab. Yeah. And, and then reality kicks in. Like my life is completely
1: like not okay. I think the first reality that things were really, really, really bad was when I had to have somebody help me to go to the bathroom. Right. I had to have somebody help me stand and all of that. I'm like, but wait, I can do that. No, you can't. No, you can't. You can't. You can't make your legs move. My arms, I couldn't make my hands go together. I lost my fine motor skills. Um, But remembering that my memory was so bad and was so erased, what ended up happening along the way is I was obliviously unaware because my memories were gone. As my memory started coming back, the loss of identity became so much clearer for me Because I then knew what I had lost. So describe that.
0: Describe that loss of identity and realizing that you've lost your identity.
1: Mm. So I'll give you one real specific example that transpired for me. And it was so shocking to me. Somebody that I had known for one, maybe two, maybe at that time, even two plus decades. I haven't done the math. Came over to my house and she was talking to me. And I looked at her and she was such a sweet human being. I'm listening to her and I'm looking at her and I have no earthly idea who she is. Mm -hmm. I don't have any idea who she is. And she then proceeds to pull out a photo album. And she shows me all these pictures of me and of her. And Mm -hmm. we were really happy and we've gone some amazing places together. And I have zero recollection of any of it. When that happens, it is the most uncomfortable feeling you can experience to know that you lived a life that other people know about that you don't. And I really tried to understand it. And people ask me how I felt in that moment when I saw those pictures. It would be like you looking at a picture of your friend's spouse, You have something in common with them, but you don't have the same emotional attachment. And that was kind of how it felt. It was emotionally void. It was beautiful. And I was happy that I had had a happy thing with this person, but there was no other emotion in it because it was gone. Now, what's really cool though, is how much I got to learn about the brain and how the brain works or doesn't work (laughs) and how the new neural pathways developed. And when things came back to me and how they came back. So I today have most of my memories back. There are still some patches. And interestingly enough, there are some things that had happened in my life that I simply chose not to go looking for. Somebody would mention it and I'd be like, ah, that's okay. I'm not going to go looking. So they're still out there and I'm not ever going to try to find them if I don't have to. If somebody triggers the thought, my brain will probably go look for it. But I was able to create new neural pathways for most everything. But when you have that moment that the world knows about you and you don't know about them, it's a very humbling and scary place to be. Um,
0: losing capacity over your mind, I think is one of the worst things that can happen to a person. Yes. And especially an ongoing
1: thing. Yes absolutely no doubt about it and that's why i say to people now if if you can do anything in this world keep your brain healthy i encourage people constantly but all if you can't do any other exercise exercise your brain i'm serious if you don't have time for anything else exercise your brain because without your brain nothing else works and it is a very very scary place to be when you have a non functioning brain i know i've been there So
0: how, so did
1: you know that your husband was your husband? Okay. So that's the really cool thing. I knew my husband. I knew my son. I knew my daughter. I didn't know my dog who lived in the same house with us. I knew my mom. I knew my dad. I did not know my sister or my brother. There were so many people. I didn't know who they were, but I remembered my husband, my daughter, my son, my mom, and my dad, the people I spent the absolute most time with. I remembered. the rest. I did not remember. Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it would be so interesting to me when somebody would walk up to me and be like, "How are you?" And I'd be like, "I'm oh, great." And I'm thinking to myself, "Who are you?" <laughs> and that's another
0: thing that is so difficult is invisible disabilities. Yes, because you know people like you look fine, but they have no idea really what's going on inside of you. Yes, and then they get confused when things are different or. Yes how was that?
1: So I think, how how
0: did you go about like letting people know, actually, I don't actually have a clue who you are. Would you like fill me in?
1: So by the time I was able to actually talk and share those words, I was functioning better, right? Because I was functioning like a very young child in the beginning and could only put together a few words. So in the beginning, I couldn't tell anybody. I just literally sat and stared at them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I knew that something I knew, I knew this person, or I knew of this person, this person was somebody if they weren't in my house, excuse me, if they were in my house, they, I thought they were friendly, just like a young child, right? If you're near me, I think you're friendly, right? As I got better, I was able to articulate more. And what did I do? I did it just like a young child. So you, Julie, you may come to me and I might've known you for 10 years. And you say to me, how are you doing today, Tina? And I'd be like, do I like you? <laughs> do I know you? who are you? Where are you? What do you do? I mean, those would be the kinds of things I would say because I would just, I was acting like a four or five, six year old child and that's what children ask. And that's what I did. So it, it was very off-putting to a whole lot of people to have me ask that because again, they don't see it. Now the blessing in my life is that So many people in my world knew this happened because it was such a unique thing that had happened that through my church and through my work and through my other connected social circles, the word spread like wildfire. So most people that came in contact with me knew something had happened. They just didn't understand the magnitude of it.
0: And you weren't in a position to explain it either
1: because you were just like getting up to speed my husband did a fantastic job of protecting me okay. because of the other piece I haven't mentioned to you, if my brain was too taxed and I'm, when I say too taxed, I'm talking like trying to put two words together. If you ask me to add and tell, to tell you what two plus two is, I would go into seizures. So when my brain was too taxed, I started seizuring. So he was fiercely protective of me overdoing and certainly made sure people understood what was happening with me so that they wouldn't overtax me either. They wouldn't they, they of would ask a bunch of questions. Yep. He he set the boundaries and perimeter boundaries and perimeter around me very well. So that was super, super helpful. And everyone knowing that something had happened to me really did make a difference.
0: Knowing that something happened and how therefore to in- interact with you, to interface because you weren't you couldn't, it would just,
1: they had to be different around you. They did. And honestly, I think the hardest part for me now thinking back was what it meant to my kids. I had an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old. And so they had to learn to interact. Their mom couldn't do anything. And I was super mom. I was the girl scout leader. I was the trip taker. I was the, you know, home doing homework with you and making sure you had everything done. And my son used to joke that I was the consummate, um, multitasker. I could do 17 things at one time because I was doing everything for everyone. And the reality was I could do nothing for them. So they had to see me differently too. And I think that that was hard for me. But I think it was very developmental for them as well in that process. And I think they came to appreciate every bit of effort that I made to get back to me as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. So you, you couldn't go to work, obviously. Basically, Correct. you were at home and probably doing going to therapy appointments, physical. Oh so man. Um, or what's the OT, PT, OT. And how about psychological?
1: So I did PTOT speech. They did the psychological testing on me. They did the cognitive development testing on me, but I did not actually go to therapy. Not till much later did I realize. Um, so I love camping. Camping is a part of my life. And so after I got well enough and further down the road, we went camping again. I had no idea how much PTSD I had about trees and being out in the woods. I was like, I gotta, I gotta get out of here. I can't do this. And I live on acreage. So I have trees. They're just not close to me. And when I was camping, they were close to me, so I was like, "I can't do this." So eventually, I did actually work on some of the PST PTSD. But I was initially it was OTPT speech, and then all the testing so they could determine my cognitive functioning level, and then lots with neurology, lots with the neurologists.
0: So this was 15 years ago. So by that yes. time, they already knew about. Neuroplasticity, because yes. they used to believe that once a brain once brain cells don't work, there's no there's nothing you can do, and now they know that they can
1: develop new neural pathways. Yes, and the doctor um, had actually said to me, if it had happened ten, maybe twelve years sooner, I would have just simply been written off as this is what it's going to be for your life. In fact, there's a cute little story that goes with that. And I say cute because it's a little sarcastic. Um, One of the doctors actually said to me, congratulations, you reached your MMI. Okay, first of all, I had no idea what MMI was. I knew what M&Ms were, but I did not know what MMI was. And so I'm like, what? And he's like, maximum medical improvement, honey. That means it's as good as you're gonna get. You reached your best. You plateaued,
0: and therefore insurance won't pay for more treatment. I used and to work as a medical social worker. There you go. Is getting getting um, specialty medical care, a lot of cerebral palsy and like really serious stuff, and then they would like not be making enough improvement fast enough and they they would say okay you've plateaued so we can't pay any more money for you to have any more treatment
1: correct well and i was functioning like a seven-year-old and
0: i and they and they said that that was all you were going to get
1: that that was all i was going to be and i don't know if you can pick this up about me yet or not um i mean you know me a little bit but um i was a little bit of a sassy (laughs) seven-year-old I kind of, I kind of sat back in my chair a little bit and I said, I'll show you good for you. And that's what I did. And we, my husband, bless his soul, advocated for my care, made sure that I got what I needed, did what we, what needed to be done. Obviously it took a toll on him being mom and dad and taking care of me and everything else, but got me the care that I needed so that I could get back to being me. And that was a stretch to get back to being me.
0: Now, so what did, what internal strengths did you pull on that you had had before that you could be using? Because you didn't just all of a sudden decide to be this like assertive person saying, I'll show you. Right. So where did that come from? And how did you like sort of connect to that to, to be your, your, sort of your life, um, life lifesaver you, I mean, you had your husband who advocated and, and like supervised and stuff, but it, it really did, all of this stuff comes down to the person actually saying, this is what's going to happen with me.
1: That's exactly right. So I believe that there's a several different things that happen. I believe when something bad happens to you or any kind of change at all, it doesn't even have to be bad change that you're either immediately disrupted or destructed. So there's a difference that happens in your life. And for me, I was destructed, right? I had to do something. I had to wait. I had to let my body heal because there was no rushing it. The swelling had to go down. The blood had to be absorbed. All that had to happen. In your brain. In my brain and my back had to heal. I had to, I had had to wait. I had to do something that I think is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And that was be patient. And I (laughs) am patient. It is, to me, it is the ugliest word in the English language.
0: Well, you're a high achiever. And so it's like things sort of happen a little easier. I mean,
1: you put in the effort, but then they happen. Well, I'm a grinder, right? I get stuff done, get stuff done. I actually have t-shirts that say GSD, get stuff done, right? So I'm that person. I'm not a type A person. I'm a type A plus person. So telling (laughs) me to sit and wait is a big deal. But I knew I had to, because again, my body was teaching me. Because every time I would push too hard, seizure. So when your body teaches you, you learn and you listen. Mm-hmm. But what really happened for me is something that I had actually spent decades. I am a peak performance expert. That's my background. I had helped organizations be peak performance. I helped individuals in organizations be peak performers. I was an executive responsible for developing all the leaders and all the, all the high performers in corporations. That's what I did. So what did I do as the neural pathways reconnected? And I relearned all that. I dug back into my grit. I did exactly what I had done before in my corporate world. For yourself. For myself. And it failed. Miserably. Which was what? It, it was all about setting my goals and my big, hairy, audacious things. And I have to be honest, it failed miserably. It failed miserably because I I couldn't do it. It was too much for my current condition. Too much too soon. Too much too soon. It was unrealistic. unrealistic It was too much period. I could not have a big, hairy, audacious vision. My big, hairy, audacious vision was to become me again, to do me again, to become an executive again, and go back to all the power and go back to all the things I was doing and all the decision-making and all the everything. And my brain would go, what are you thinking? You can go there. You, you can't even put food on a spoon and put it to your mouth. What? No. And so I could not do it the way I had taught others to do it. What so wait a
0: minute. So I want to, I want to dig into the, the identity of this. Yes. So at this point you're, you're able to think clearly. And more able, clearly. Okay, you're able to think more you're able to think clearly enough to set these goals. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time you've got this other this part of your brain this like it's not happening and so then the the part that has these goals is like, "Oh, what do you mean it's not happening?" So what how what does that do to your identity? Like how do you like
1: integrate these two extremes. So it was actually a lot easier than I thought it would be because Mm -hmm. what ended up happening is, so I am a person who believes that the quality of your life is determined by the quality of the questions that you asked.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So I asked the question, if I can't do a, and my, my body is seizuring. So I know I can't do it. Mm -hmm. So if I can't yet do it, what can I do? Mm -hmm. That's broke it down into the tiniest step I could do. And I refer to it as moving my peas. And I know that's going to sound odd, but I had a little tiny plastic cup with little tiny plastic peas in it with a little tiny pair of plastic tweezers. Actually, they were quite large, but a pair of plastic tweezers. And I had to pick up one pea and move it to the other cup and drop it. And I would move those one P at a time. That was your occupational therapy. That was occupational occupational therapy. And it was actually working on my fine motor skills and helping me to have a remembrance of a pattern. So that's what I was doing. And what was happening as I was doing those things, I realized I could do those things. I just have to break everything else down into one P at a time. And so what I did is instead of having a big hairy audacious goal, I said, no, I'm going to have a vision, but my vision that I have is going to start as big as I can allow it to be right now. And I have to be okay with that because once I'm okay with it being this big and my body will let me and my brain will let me, I can then have a bigger vision. But what I realized along the way is that so many people around me didn't know where they wanted to go. Instead, what they would say is what they didn't want. I don't want pain anymore. I don't want the thought anymore. I don't like the job I have. I don't want this. I don't want this. And I realized that that the visions I'd help corporations set were really super valuable for me right now, but I had to be okay with them being small. So I set my next tiny P vision. And as I did, I would be able to then set a goal that went with that vision. I was able to set a plan that went with that vision. But most importantly, I think, caused me to get back to where I was was getting true to what my values were today. There are so many people in my world that said values never change. Values never change. Values never change. Ah, yes, they do. They totally do.
0: Yeah. With these kind of events, they sure as heck
1: do. Well, any type of change, your values can change, right? With right. Change, your Values can change. So my values before were all about Aspiring. I told you that it was aspire achievement, achievement, a thousand percent. I used to say, I wanted. This is how I, I, I categorize it for people today. I wanted to aspire before I expired and my values changed to faith and family and inspiring before I expire. Mm. I had to focus on me, put my dang blinders on because let's be honest about it. Let's be really, really, really honest about it. If I had looked at the number of things I did in a day compared to any other adult around me, I would have felt like an absolute failure in life. I couldn't even move a pee sometimes for six, seven, eight hours in a day. And these other people are jet setting and cutting deals and running organizations and all of this. And I can't move a pee. The beauty of it is, I was so focused on moving those peas, I didn't see the other people. But once I started to see them, that horrible disease that some of us have called comparisonitis, <laughs> they came back up and I started going, but wait, they can do that. and I can't. I was like, you know what? No. Instead what I did in that very moment is I made a decision and that's all it is. I made a decision that I am never going to compare myself to others again I'm going to celebrate them and I am not going to compare, but I'm going to look internal and be grateful for the things I can do because I can do a whole heck of a lot right now that I couldn't do a little while ago. So it was simply a decision to keep those blinders on. And some days, uh, I'll be honest, yesterday, comparison comparisonitis tried to take me out of the game and I'm like, wait a minute, I feel better than this. We're going to stop right now. Not going to happen because I'm happy for them. I am so happy for them. And I think I've done what I want to do with my life. So what I know is if I want that, first of all, I didn't want that, that I was comparing to yesterday. If I want that, then I can have it. I just don't have it yet. And I kept my lips on And I think that's one of the biggest pieces that got me back to where it is. It's losing comparison-itis. It does creep into my life sometimes, but I still have to stop it.
0: Right, so we can't control the thoughts that rumble through our mind, we can control how we respond to those thoughts. So when you're having, when you recognize that you're having comparison, then you do a little interrupt and you're like, I don't need this. Let me have this instead. Let me focus on what I can do instead. Correct. And especially even like with these kind of injuries and I've had like lots of, I have lots of like health stuff and I can't like, I'm not like, who I used to be right and so even I can't even like compare myself to myself who I used to be because it's like no I need to judge myself in this moment in, in this slice of piece of time right and that's one of the things in my book that I talk about is um God, what are what is it anyway in oh I know it's so it's in productivity is uh-huh. that so I have a chapter on productivity. And the thing is, is that we measure our, once when you're in forced identity transition, you're not measuring productivity. You're not measuring the same things. Correct. And you're actually more measuring just doing versus accomplishing. Like, did I show up and actually do try to move those peas today Correct. versus did I move those peas? Correct. It's not about how many peas you moved. It's like, did I, for the amount of time I said I was going to try, did I actually show up and do that? And and that's so important because, you know, we get it so drilled in from like grade school through all school, is like you have these requirements and everything has to be done on a timeline. And then you get into jobs, and everything is about like meeting these external expectations. And then when these big things happen, the rugs pulled out from under us. And we're not able to function for whatever reason on the same level to accept that and really focus on, well, what can I
1: do? All I ever wanted to be after my accident was a little bit better than I was the day before. That's all I wanted, a little bit better than the day before. And eventually... I started to realize that I'm am a little bit better than I was before and then a little bit better and so, you know a lot of people say use 1% better than the day before I couldn't figure out what a percent was so all I said to myself every day was I want to be a little bit better I want to be a little bit more like me and eventually I got to go back to walking on my own wait wait you- before you before you go sure. into that sure. what did it feel like to not
0: be you like you, you now oh. you did have your memory, and you knew who your you, you used to be, and you knew who you knew who your you was. What was that like with that identity, like in limbo? Because you knew you were moving towards it, but you weren't there, and you weren't you know who you were before. What so what is that? That's called actually being in liminality, in limbo between identities.
1: It's maddening. It is absolutely maddening because you want it so bad. You want to be at the end result so badly, but you can't yet. And again, it's that horrible word patience that comes up again. Yeah. You have to actually allow the unfolding to happen. And it's for me, that is where faith, first of all, the fact that I survived to me is a faith based issue or a faith based outcome. And then being able to heal to the point that I did was a faith-based outcome, but it really was challenging to know, because remember in the beginning, I didn't know how bad I was. Right. Cause I learned how bad I was. It was such an unfolding of, wow, I've got such a chasm to cross, but each day getting better kept reassuring me. And some days weren't better, but when they weren't better, all I did in that day It wasn't the, you know, I fell back 5%, or I felt it was none of the measurement. It was today just wasn't such a good day. Tomorrow will be a good day. And that's how I stayed with it. There were days where I flat out wanted to give up. You're like, are you kidding me? I can't even stand. When I stand, I fall down. Are you kidding me? My favorite one was they banned me from the kitchen because and it's not a favorite for a good reason. I kept burning myself. Like I would forget the pans are hot and I would touch them just like a young child. I couldn't cook a meal for my family. There was so much I couldn't do. And the more I became aware of what I couldn't do, the more that weighed on me. And like you said, it's, you're in a limbo state. It's frustrating, it's maddening. But I kept saying, if I let this frustration, win, then I will never get to my goal. And it's not about that goal. It's about who I become in this process. And remember, I told you my values went to inspiring, And every time I got back up and tried again, I will be honest with you, most people would never blame me or judge me in any bad way if I would have just sat down and never done another thing with my life. They would have been like, wow, you had such a traumatic injury. I understand why you can't do something. And I had people do that to me. I had a lot of people do that to me. Mm -hmm. I, I call it woeing people to death because they they were like, I understand it's so hard and it's so bad, I understand you can't. No, don't do that to people, encourage them. So for me, with people feeling like it's horrible that you can't, every time I could, I inspired them to do something more in their life. And so that knowing that I was doing something to serve others just by continuing that game and that gain was so important to me. Mm-hmm. Being a role model. Being a role model, living to inspire others. Because let's face it, I really had to go from A to Z. Most people don't start at where I did and go to where I did. Most people don't have that big of a chasm to cross. And for me, that's what really kept me going through the hardest of times is knowing that if I can just push through and do one more P, it will inspire someone to not quit today. Mm,
0: How beautiful.
1: My goodness.
0: So let's see, the hour's running out and we didn't quite get through your story. So how did you, how long were you like so, so working so hard? And when did you actually like break through and become sort of independent again? And how was that? And how did your, how, you know, how does that look as far as like from identity
1: Wow. So, um, it was several years before I became me again. Okay. I'll be really candid and please don't tell the entire world that although it's going to be on podcast now, um, I actually went back to work before I could function well. And I, I was able to get myself to, I couldn't even drive a car. I was not allowed to drive yet. And I went back to work because again, a type a plus person. Um, but anyways, um, it was a full 10 years before I actually did my final healing. I was working, but I, um, because of the way my back was damaged and my hips were um, a little out of alignment, I ended up having to have both hips replaced 10 years. in, so my final healing of making me back to the best me that I had been in all those years was 10 years later. But I did do uh, some things along the way, obviously returning to work and some other things within the 10-year time frame. But it really is, um, like I say, there's still some blank holes that are there. And I I intentionally choose to leave some of them there, but there's still some things that are not 100% me. You can't tell if you didn't know me before. Mm-hmm. Identity-wise, it was really, I think the moment that I went back into the corporate realm, and I got back into the executive level roles that I was in, is the moment where I felt like, okay, I became me again. And it was also the moment when I said, I did this, but I don't want this anymore. So that's the value shift. That was the value shift. And and there was many other things that transpired between point A and point B, but yes, that was the value shift. And a new identity was born again because you left. I did leave corporate and I decided to share my story so that I can inspire people around the world with this story and the lessons and how to apply them in your life, because I believe all of us have more potential than we actually live to and how we can maximize that and become unstoppable at maximizing that. And then I wrote a book um, and became a best-selling author. And I speak on stages around the world. Here's the mm-hmm. fun thing. I Couldn't put 15 years ago, I couldn't put the words together to say hot dog, and now I've written a best selling book and I speak on stages. Mm. But my chasm was super wide, and I crossed it. And whatever width your chasm is that you have to cross right now, you can do it too, right? Well. At least you can
0: keep trying because if you don't, you're definitely not going to make it to the other side.
1: Correct. Correct. And it is all about continuous action. That's what it's all about. Staying in motion. An object in motion stays in motion. And it doesn't have to be giant motions. Mine certainly were not giant motions, but they added up to be
0: quite large. What is your core message when you give a
1: speech on stage? So my core message is about overcoming adversity and how to do that. How, what the, what the lessons are inside the book, like knowing where you're going is one of the key lessons. And then I talk about how to set your plans, how to create accountability, how to have the right aim, as I call it, which is the attitude, the inspiration, the motivation to get through the tough times. And I tell so many stories in the book about, and I smile when I say it about, how I saw the world functioning as a young child, watching adults and adults are so weird. They are so weird and so complicated, but it really does help just strip away all that, um, extra layers that we've added on. So I, that's what my talk is all about on stage is becoming unstoppable and how you can set that plan up for yourself. And if I'm doing workshops, it's always walking them through how to do those steps.
0: Now, did, did, regressing back to a level of a 3 year old help you like see how weird adults are and like be able to get to the the core of like this is what needs to be done and and get rid of some of those layers that adults
1: complicate things with I have been able to, for the last 15 years, or actually probably 14, because the first year I probably didn't do this too well, to be fair, uh, to been able to strip away and keep everything so simple. And that's honestly why most people work with me, is that they love the simplicity that I can do. I just cut through. I can see things differently than other people can because of where I've looked at the world through. And what the book does, or what I tried to do in the book, and I think it's actually worked because I've gotten that feedback from readers, is that it lets you look at the world through my. My eyes as I was functioning. And the reality is all those layers tried to come back to me and I had to make the decision and choice not to let them. And it's an active way of being every single day to not let those layers pile back on because adults are so weird and I'm being the weird adult trying to add them back on. So I have to actively make the choice and decision every day to not let that happen. That's so
0: interesting. Cause I'm, I'm, reading through my book for the last time before it goes to print, and I'm in the chapter where I'm saying that, you know, when you have this, you're forced into an identity transition against your will, you didn't raise your hand, you didn't vote for it, is while you're piecing yourself back together, you're making these choices. Well, actually, do I want to keep, so some pieces have been lost and and it was against your will. But at the same time, you're able to like, let go of other pieces that are actually like on second thought. Actually, I don't really want to build around this. Let's leave this piece out. So
1: that's what you did. That's really, this is so exciting to hear. One of the chapters I wrote about are your thoughts and curiosities. And one of the things that would happen is I would have a thought come in my head. And the, my thoughts move so slowly into my processing that sometimes it would take me an hour to put a full thought together, but I would have to ask myself about the value of that thought. And I and then dismiss the things I wanted to dismiss. And it's so much easier than we make it. It really is.
0: Yeah, our belief, you know, we have every right to let go of beliefs that no longer serve us.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And
0: people, people are so wedded to their their whole thinking system and it's like but you know what if you really look at it that actually might not actually be serving you and it might not actually really be true anymore it might have been true in the past it might not have but right now is it
1: really still true correct and that's exactly it and if it wasn't if i would actually ask if it was a good thought or a bad thought is it true if it's really true i would ask myself a second and third and fourth time because I wasn't sure what answer would come up if I ask it a second time, because remember my memory was not so good. So it really was just such a process. And again, it goes back, like I said, early on to the quality of questions that we ask ourselves. And the thing is, we have a million thoughts a day, and you well know this, you wrote a book on this too, that you have a million thoughts a day that flow through and we just accept them as they are. And we're too busy which we're really not too busy, just a side note there, but we're too busy to stop and question the thoughts. And when we do, we really expand our critical thinking. And for all of you listening right now, when you stop your thoughts and you use critical thinking, you are exercising your brain and your future self Will, thank you for it. I do everything in my power to make sure I don't go back to where I was. And I implore you to use critical thinking skills to read and to do other things so that you keep your brain sharp too. So define critical thinking skills and then we better really wrap it up. Sure, critical thinking skills is the ability to assess what role you've played in something, how you've done something to question what's happening in front of you, to do research that backs that up, as well as making sure that you're asking yourself the hardest question like you had said earlier, is this true? Is this really true? What is the other possibility? What's the potential? What just did happen? Is this in fact going to make a difference in that situation and applying it on top? So using critical decision-making tactics. And I go through a whole series of questions inside.
0: This sounds so exciting. Oh my goodness. So the book is Standing
1: Strong. What's the subtitle? the real life story of overcoming adversity and becoming unstoppable in life and business, which is what I kind of (laughs) do. I help other people do that as well. Oh my goodness. Okay. Can I tell you why I named it standing strong real quick? Yes, go ahead. So the name standing strong came from the first day that I was actually able to stand on my own. My husband had been guarding me, like grabbing my arms every time I stood up because I wobbled so badly. And obviously, if you have a brain injury, falling is not a good thing. So, no, no not. So they, I, I held up one finger, and he knew that at that point that meant give me space or give me a moment because I'm doing something. Whether it's I'm, you know, processing a thought or what you don't know, you just know I needed a moment. So he gave me that moment, and he kept asking me, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" And the first three words that I was able to say to him was, "I." stand strong so i named it standing strong because it's the way that i came back and the way that you can come back from your adversity as well your adversity your change or your setback
0: that is so beautiful wow um real quick yes give me give me in a nutshell your identity before the accident your identity as you're recovering from the accident and your identity now
1: mom threw out all of it. It, none of that ever changed. Mom, mom, and mom. I love being mom. I so love being mom. That's part of who I am and who I will always be. That beforehand was aspiring as corporate exec, doing flying in private jets, doing all that stuff, cutting deals, wheeling, dealing all of it, the power, all of it to really inspiring, inspiring, inspiring. Identity became somebody who wanted to help others achieve more. And now 3.0, 3.0 Tina is not helping corporations achieve more, but helping individuals, leaders, entrepreneurs, people who don't have the resources corporations do, including individuals, helping them achieve more and reach their goals. Because let's face it, the biggest challenge in life that we all face is to become what's possible in our life. And right. I really strive to help people become unstoppable at becoming what's possible. Mm.
0: And so how can people find you online and what um, takeaway do you want to leave with people? Finding me and online. What, what do you, what do, why would they want to find you? you? Do you do coaching or what is it do. that you do?
1: So classes? I do, I do, I was just going to say, I do several things. I have community, I do classes and I do um, individual coaching as well. You can find me at successcoachingsolutions.com. And I actually, if it's okay with you, I would love to offer your listeners an opportunity to grab the free version of lesson one from my book. The first half of my book is the story and you need to read it because it's so, you feel like you're in it and you feel like you're understanding it. And it's really kind of cool. The second half are all the life lessons of it. And I'd love to offer them the first life lesson that I actually wrote about. And I actually talk a lot about the imposter syndrome inside of that one as well. So it's a one that people love. And so how do people get that? I You can find it at successcoachingsolutions.com forward slash resources. And it has all the different resources for you on that page.
0: Nice, beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Tina. And it's just so amazing to hear how people like, number one, survive and number one, come to thrive. And would you say that you're like even maybe happier with who you are than who you were Tina 1.0 before the accident?
1: I don't recognize Tina 1.0 before the accident. I don't recognize her anymore. It's not any of my wants, desires, or dreams anymore. It's not, I don't recognize her. I think I'm much more peaceful. I think I'm much more contented. And I think I've been happy in all of them because that's what I knew at the time But I think that what I've really done is grown into this one and I absolutely love it. And just for a little cherry on top, as of Mother's Day, my family actually uh, decided that I'm long enough out from my uh, traumatic brain injury now that I can actually start taking flying lessons. So they bought me my first flying lesson. So now I'm going to become a pilot as well. So it's never too late to actually do whatever it is that's in your heart and in your desires to do. So I just wanted to throw that little thing out there. If you're thinking you can't do something, it's never too late to actually start.
0: Well, that is one powerful point to end on. Thank you,
1: Tina. Thank you so much for having me. I've truly enjoyed this conversation.
0: Thank you. And this has been Julie Brown on Bold Becoming. Hey there. The value that you got from this today, take it into your heart. Add value to it. In your own life by putting it into practice and growing it to be part of your life, your daily habits, the takeaways that you got from this. Words and thoughts only take us so far. It's implementing on those words and thoughts that will change your life. Ideas are just ideas. Taking action on ideas is where growth happens and freedom emerges from growth freedom from our past invisible binding. We're here to grow and release ourselves from our past constraints. With awareness, intention, and through taking action on new choices, we evolve. In this process, we exalt our pain and suffering into wisdom that empowers us. We all have the ability to transform and become that person we yearn to be. If today's episode added value to your life, please share it with others. And make sure to subscribe to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. And if you might, take a minute right now and leave a review so that others can find out about this podcast. If you'd like to contact me for one-on-one coaching or to get on the wait list for my Tough Stories workshop, send me an email and we'll be in touch. Be sure to check out our free Facebook group of Bold Becomers, the links in the show notes.